tonight. Thank you. It's on, don't touch it. I got his wallet while I was back there too. <laughs> Hello. Hey! Right. Well done. Right. Well, they say it's also nice to go traveling, don't they? But it's so much nicer to come home. And I really, this is it. Right for H and I, we've got two homes now. We've got Montana and Washington State, but Clark Falls City Church, this is home. This platform feels like home, seeing these wonderful familiar faces out there. And here we are again. I can't believe it's a year since the first summit. And now here we are, Regions Beyond Summit 2016. So, so I'm gonna ask a couple of questions. First of all, Regions Beyond Summit. What is Regions Beyond? Regions Beyond is a name that we have given to something that God is doing. And what God is doing is this. He's joining us together to take part in this incredible project of winning the nations for Jesus. That's what Regions Beyond is. It's recognizing what God is doing. And then we are Regions Beyond Summit. So what's a summit? A summit is a place where when you reach it, you can see farther than you've ever seen before. You can see things you've never seen before. So we've gathered in this place to stand here and see something we've never seen before. Just as already said, last year I stood on this platform, I had no idea that my life and Rachel's life was about to be turned upside down. That God was gonna speak to us and said, right, weren't you in America for six months? And so we went back and we told our family, we told our friends and we told our church and we came back, but we had no, I had no idea when I walked through that door for the summit 2015, that our life was gonna be turned completely upside down. And I believe that there are people in this room tonight, stand by, because in the next two days, God's gonna turn your life completely upside down. You don't even know where you're gonna be in two months because God can just suddenly take hold of you and everything will change. A summit is a place where you see things that you've never seen before. And biblically, a summit is something else. Biblically, a summit is a place where people encounter God. 
Biblically, on a high place, on the mountaintop, whether it's Mount Horeb or a high place where Jesus gathered the disciples, this is the place of encounter. And I want nothing else in the next two days but an encounter with God. I want this to be the summit. This is the place where God breaks in and we encounter him. And I just want you to turn in your Bible now to a passage in the Old Testament, book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. We're going to read there a few verses and then we're going to think about what Nehemiah has to say, but what God wants to say through him. I've entitled this message, by the way, Carrying on a great project. And I'm here to tell you that what we've been caught up with, with Regions Beyond, what we've been caught up in in Christ, is a great project. And this must be the most exciting thing. So Nehemiah chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 1. When the word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat, the Geshem, and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. And then the fifth time, Sam Ballett sent his assistant to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. And we all know Geshem's, don't we? If Geshem says it's true... It's got to be true. It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this, comp this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Rubbish! Well, not quite that. I sent him this reply. Actually, can you say rubbish in America? I always forget. Yeah, yeah, rubbish. What do you think of it so far? No. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed. Now, strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, and the son of Mehetabel, who was shut up in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. 
Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Naodiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. And so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. And the text I want to refer to this evening over and over again is verse 3. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Or in other versions, I'm about a great work, and I refuse to be distracted. And that's the message that God has for us today, that we're about a great work. At a time when his nation, and this is a quotation from chapter 1, when Nehemiah's nation was in great trouble and distress, Nehemiah felt the call from God to get personally involved and that's what this conference is all about because God is calling every one of us and everyone who's not here but is part of our churches to stand up and get personally involved not just to urge the leaders on but every one of us has now got to get personally involved God is calling us every one of you in this room, myself included, to get personally involved and owning it in exactly the same way that Nehemiah owned it and to the same extent that Nehemiah owned it. So I'm going to pray that tonight and tomorrow and Sunday that we will all hear the urgency of the call. Not just our nations are in trouble, the world is in trouble. And we're going to get personally involved in changing that that right? Father, here we are, Lord. We've just turned up for a conference, but Lord, we know that in your heart, you've got different plans. This isn't going to be just a conference. This is going to be an encounter with you. You've drawn us to this summit, to this high place, to reveal things to us that we would not have seen otherwise. And you're going to speak to each of us individually, and you're going to speak to us as a group of people that you're going to join us together on this incredible, great project. And we're going to leave here on Sunday morning knowing that we can't be distracted. We can't afford to go down. We can't afford to abandon this work because this is the great project of our lives. And we thank you for including us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's our calling, folks. Nothing less than building the city of God, building the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said that his church would be like a city set on a hill where everyone will be able to see it. And our destiny is to be like that city that Nehemiah was building, one that could be seen. But the one that we're building is one that's going to be seen not just in one nation, but all over the world. And we're going to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like in practice through the lives of people who live it out day by day by the life that we mirror together in our local churches in our small groups we're going to lift up the banner and people will say that's what the city of god looks like that's how the people of god live nehemiah was a man who committed himself totally to one great vision that of building the city of god and if it describes nehemiah how much more should it describe every one of us in this room? Because Nehemiah was building the model, what the theologians call the type. Nehemiah was only building the picture 
we have been called to build the real thing that he was building a picture of, which is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the joy of the whole earth, the church of Jesus Christ. And the city of God today, despite what some people will tell you, is not some city out there in the Middle East. It is the church of Jesus Christ in every city, in every nation across the world, and we've been called to build it. The first person to see this city was a man called Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 10 tells us, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder was God. He saw something. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see godly men sensing that call to build this city. Men like Moses, men like David, Solomon, Nehemiah. They gave themselves to building something in the natural, but deep in their hearts, there was a sense that they were called to build something more than just bricks and mortar more than just a city wall, more than just a temple. They weren't quite sure what it was, but they knew they were building something of eternal consequence. And then one day, God broke in and Jesus came and he announced the arrival of the city. The moment that Peter recognized him as the anointed one, as the Messiah, Jesus said, on this rock... I will build my church. That is the declaration of those who know who he is. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And then as you read through to the end of the New Testament, you read the book of Revelation that the apostle John had a vision. In Revelation 21, he says, I saw it. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. I want to suggest to you tonight that our great project, the one that you've been called to give your life to, it was all planned. From eternity it was planned. From the beginning of time, as God began to call people, it was prophesied about, it was prepared, it was founded when Jesus came, and it will be completed, and it will be glorious. But as far as I'm concerned, here's the really exciting thing, that every one of us in this room, you and me and Steve and Ray, every one of us, we've been called to be involved in the building of this great city. We've been called to be part of this project. It's what we were born for. In eternity, God had prepared this work for us to do. Works prepared before the foundation of the earth for us to walk in. It was building this city. We've always been, you've always been part of this plan. You may not have realized it. You may have only been a Christian a week, but suddenly you're beginning to realize, or maybe you've been a Christian a long time. But even before you became aware, even before you could speak one word as a little baby, it had been decided that you'll be part of this great project. The architect and builder always had you in mind as he planned this city. You know, I'm a bit, in England we say cack-handed. Can you say cack-handed in America? Do you know what I mean? I'm useless at making things, okay? Me and DIY just don't go together. It's just as simple as that. If, if you want to shelf put up in my home, Rachel does it. Because experience has taught her, if I do it, it will fall down tomorrow. That's the end of it. So I'm always impressed by people who know how to build things. I mean, when Josh told me that he was building his own house, 
That is impressive. That is something incredibly impressive to me. But God wants every one of us, from the perspective of eternity, to be able to see what John saw, to be able to see what John described, and be able to say, I helped build that. I was involved in building that. Even me, I can say, I helped build that. You see, lots of Christians think that the reward of heaven is simply to get there. The reward of heaven is that when we're there together, we will be able to look at the city of God and say, I was involved in building that. That was my calling, to build that. That's the reward. That's the satisfaction that we're going to have in glory, that we gave ourselves to this one great project and we refused to be distracted. And at the end, as we walked into glory, there was a man standing before us, Jesus Christ, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You did your part. I truly believe that the issue for us today is for every one of us in this room to wake up to just how big, just how important, just how vital, just how glorious this project is. And I tell you, once people grasp it, once people see this project, once people see it, life is never the same again and there's no holding them back. Incredible things start to happen when a people see it. Wonderful things come into place. Great churches are built because people see this. Tomorrow night, or tomorrow morning, Ray is going to be talking about some people who saw it and what they achieved once they grasped this vision. I'm looking forward to that message. Mighty movements are birthed. Revivals happened because people suddenly see it and realize, I'm about this great project and I cannot go down. The first thing, though, is that you have to see it. And that's why we're here together calling upon God for a fresh revelation of this great project, a fresh revelation of the new Jerusalem, a fresh revelation of the church of Jesus Christ, a fresh revelation of the call to the nations. I want you to listen to a passage I'm going to read to you from Bill Hybel's book, Courageous Leadership, as he describes the moment that he first saw it. Maybe as I'm speaking, you're thinking about the moment that you first saw it. Maybe you haven't seen it yet. And today, you're going to see it for the first time. This great project, the moment that changed the whole direction of Bill Hybel's life, my life, Steve's life, Ray's life, many of us in this room. This is what uh, Bill Hybels writes. In the early 70s, I had an experience so powerful that it divided my life into before and after. I was a college student taking a required course in New Testament studies to complete my major. To my way of thinking, this class was guaranteed to be brain-numbingly boring. A required Bible class, it had flatliner written all over it. I was sure the only challenge in this class would, would offer me would be the challenge of trying to stay awake. And as I staked out my usual claim to a back row seat and assumed a comfortable slouch, legs extended, arms folded, I had no idea that a spiritual ambush awaited me. 
toward the end of the lecture, just when I thought it was time to pack it up and leave, the professor, Dr. Gilbert Bilzekian, decided he wasn't quite finished for the day. And closing his notes, he stepped out from behind his lectern and then he bared his soul to a room full of unsuspecting 20-year-olds. Students, he said, there was once a community of believers who were so totally devoted to God that their life together was charged with the Spirit's power. And in that band of Christ followers, believers loved each other with a radical kind of love. They took off their masks and shared their lives with one another. They laughed and cried and prayed and sang and served together in authentic Christian fellowship. Those who had more shared freely with those who had less until socioeconomic barriers just melted away. People related together in ways that bridged gender and racial chasms and celebrated cultural differences. Acts 2 tells us that this community of believers, this church, offered unbelievers a vision of life that was so beautiful it took their breath away. It was so bold, so creative, so dynamic that they couldn't resist it. And verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Dr. Bilzekian's unscripted words were as much a lament as they were a dream, a sad longing for the restoration of that first century church. But I had never imagined a more compelling vision. In fact, that day I didn't just see the vision, I was seized by it. And suddenly there were tears in my eyes and a responsive call rising up in my soul. Where, I wondered, had that beauty gone? Why was that power not evident in the contemporary church? Would the Christian community ever see that potential realized again? And almost 30 years ago now, while Dr. Bilzekin was casting his vision of life in a biblically functioning community, I experienced an intensity of emotion I had never felt before in my life. As he spoke, sometimes I felt like cheering wildly. By the way, you're allowed to do that tonight. If you feel like cheering wildly, carry on. Sometimes I felt like cheering wildly. At other times, I felt like sobbing. Occasionally, I wanted to stand up in front of my classmates and scream out, Hey, everybody, this is it. Don't you see it? Can't you feel it? The local church is the hope of the world. It's the God-ordained redemptive agency upon which the destiny of the entire world hangs. So cancel your career plans. Do something important with your one and only life. Lay it down for Jesus and his church. Decades have passed now, but the feelings behind those words are as real to me today as they were in that college classroom. Since that day, I have been held hostage by the powerful picture of the Acts 2 dream painted in that college classroom. And in the weeks and months after that first lecture, I was haunted by questions. What if? What if a true community of God could be established in the 20th century? What if what happened in Jerusalem could happen in Chicago? Such a movement of God would surely transform this world and usher people into the next. I was a goner, utterly captivated by a single vision of the potential beauty of the local church. 
And here's my question to you. Have you seen it? Have you seen that vision? Have you seen what he is describing there? Has it captivated your heart? And here's the other question. Will you commit yourself tonight to building it with every ounce of energy that you have been given by God? I think this is the most important question any of us will ever face apart from the question, will you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? Will you give yourself to this great project? And that's the reason we're here. Because not only does God want us to see it and see it again, he wants us to be seized by it, totally captivated by it, and totally committed to making it happen in Missoula, in Spokane, in Helena, in Bozeman, wherever God takes us, he wants us to commit ourselves to doing it across the world. I want to suggest to you that what brings us here tonight and what drew you to this conference was not regions beyond, wasn't Steve Oliver, wasn't Ray Lowe, it was Jesus himself. And he wants to show us something and he wants to give us something. And what he wants to give us is this. He wants to give us a common purpose and a common destiny. He wants us to build the city of God together, together. We are no longer a group of individuals. We are no longer a group of churches. We are a people who've been joined together to build something very special for Jesus. Charles Coulson, in his book, The Body, Christianity is much more than just a private transaction with Jesus. When Peter made his confession, Jesus did not say, well, that's great, Peter, now you are officially saved and you will have abundant life, so be at peace, my friend, relax and rest, find a nice place to worship on Sundays when it's convenient for you. He didn't say that. Instead, he announced the church and established a divinely ordained pattern. When we confess Christ, God's response is to bring us into his church. We become part of his called out people. We become followers of Christ. We become disciples. We become members of his church. And our commitment to the church is indistinguishable from our commitment to him. Now, that's a statement. Our commitment to the church is indistinguishable to our commitment to Jesus. What do you think about that? I tell you this, not many Americans know that. They think their commitment to Jesus has been a private transaction. They didn't know the moment they made that transaction, they crossed a line into a community. And their calling is to build that community. Our commitment to the church is indistinguishable from our commitment to Jesus. What does your commitment to your church tell the world about your commitment to Jesus? Because the call on your life is not simply to attend meetings of the church. It's to be a fully functioning member of Jesus' body. To be totally captivated by this one great vision. The Bible, my friends, is absolutely crystal clear. God wants the primary focus of your life to be sharing his overwhelming passion for his bride. 
You know, sometimes in a very individualistic age, we forget just how special and important the church is to Jesus. But Ephesians 5.25 makes it very clear. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He did not die for a bunch of individuals. He died for a bride. He died for the church, for what we are and what we've been called to be together. That's what was in Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross, and the joy set before him was his church, his people. Have you seen it? Or as Bill Hybels says, have you been held hostage to that powerful picture of the Acts 2 vision? Have you and are you haunted by that question that gripped Bill Hybels? What if? What if the true community of God could be established in the 21st century? What if the true community of God could be established in Spokane, in Missoula, in Helena, in Bozeman? What if a people were so radically consumed by this vision, they gave themselves totally to it? No distractions allowed. What would happen? Absolutely. It can happen. All it needs is the commitment of men like Nehemiah and the commitment that men like Nehemiah had the courage to call for. It needs a few more people with the courage to stir their friends and say, let's go for this. Rick Warren, one of your own, says, we have a job to do in America. Our ultimate goal is to turn an audience into an army. Hey, you don't judge the strength of an army by how many soldiers sit and eat in the mess hall. You judge the strength of an army on how they perform on the front line. And so a church's strength is not seen in how many turn up for services to get fed, but how many are serving in the field. God wants every one of us in this room on the front line. And just in case you're sitting there thinking, hang about, me? On the front line? I rather like getting fed. I rather like coming on Sundays. In fact, it's taken me a long time to find a church where I get fed. Yeah? Well, get fed at home. You've got a Bible. You've got a million commentaries. Come here and serve. Get on the front line out there. But just in case you're thinking, who me? Remember this, that Jesus has given every one of us in this room a staggering promise. In Matthew 12, he told us that whoever is the least believer in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was no slouch, was he? He was one of the greatest of the prophets, and yet Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Because every one of us knows about the truth of the resurrection and has been filled with the Holy Spirit. But think about that. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. That means that mathematically speaking, statistically speaking, somewhere in the world right now is the least in the kingdom of God. The one at the bottom of the pile. And it's quite possible that the least in the kingdom of God is in this room right now. And you may be sitting there thinking, yes, I know, it's me. I am the least in the kingdom of God. 
And God's looking down from heaven. He's saying, that's right. It's you. You are the very bottom of the pile. And if it is you and you're the very bottom of the pile, you've got to realize something. Jesus has told you that you are greater than John the Baptist. You've got more power, more authority than John the Baptist. So what are you doing sitting there leading the kingdom of God? Get up and get on with it. Tonight, this room becomes a mobilization center, okay? You didn't know it when you walked through that door, but there's a call-up going on. God's on the move in a way that most of us in this room have been longing for our whole lives. doesn't matter in which direction you look, which nation you look. God's doing amazing things. I could stand here if I had time. We've all got to have a meeting in five minutes and tell you story after story, Steve will tomorrow, Ray will tomorrow, of what God's doing around the world. Listen. It's no longer business as usual. Something has changed. A page has been turned. And I want to say to every one of us in this room, do not expect for yourself to be in the same place spiritually in a year's time as you are now. God's got something in store for you which involves growth, which involves taking on new responsibilities, which means stepping into new roles, embracing new ministries. God wants you to change and he's given you all that you need to make that change and God wants us to grow because unless we grow, our churches won't grow and if our churches won't grow, this nation won't be changed and the world won't be taken. So expect personal growth and go looking for it. Expect a greater anointing and a greater gifting and ask him for it. Expect greater responsibility and accept it when you're asked to take it. Because we have been given something very special. We've been given a day of opportunity like there's never been for years and years and years. Let's grab it with both hands, let's embrace it, and let's get on with it. You see, there are a million things that you could devote your life to, and they would all be wonderful and worthwhile, but there's only one thing in this world that God has promised to bless, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. So why not give yourself to that rather than anything else? And that's why when we read the New Testament, we read Acts chapter 2. We see a group of people who cottoned on to this and they gave themselves to it. The word that Luke uses to describe these people, they'd seen it and they devoted themselves to it. They devoted themselves to teaching. They devoted themselves to training. They devoted themselves to friendship. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to witness. They devoted themselves to praise. They devoted themselves to the church of Jesus Christ because they knew there was nothing else like it and there's no other opportunity around that could bring such fulfillment and such rewards they saw something and they gave themselves to it there's a preacher back in the UK and he says the most undervalued three words in the New Testament are these they devoted themselves those first followers of Jesus devoted themselves to Jesus and to building his church. They were a Nehemiah-type people, and they gave themselves to up everything. And Jesus said it would happen. Do you remember the parable of the pearl of great price? Once you see this, nothing will stay. Sell everything, I've got to get that pearl. That's what he was talking about, people who'd seen this and were prepared to give up everything. So I've got a question for you. I can't call you church because your church is... But we are movement, so I've got a question for you, movement. Can I use that word? Who's in? Let's have a show of hands. Okay, who's out? 
Okay, that's good. Once we start to think like this, once we really start to grasp the fact that we've been called to this vision, and once we start to live it out, to stir ourselves, to get involved with a single-minded devotion, two things start to happen simultaneously. The first is this. God begins to bless. Because God loves it when people stand up and make a commitment. God loves it when people say, I'm in. God loves it when faith is exerted. And that's why when you read Acts chapter 2, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved because God was honouring what would happen. We've just had in the UK a wonderful summer. I guess the summers in the church here are a bit like the summers in the church in the UK. You all go on vacation. And you look around on Sunday morning and say, well, we used to have a church, but I don't know where it is right now. You've got another day like that coming up. It's called the opening of hunting season, but we're not even going to talk about that because I got myself into a lot of trouble whilst I was here talking about things like that. And I'm certainly not going to talk about guns. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> but at the beginning of the summer, around about halfway... No, I'm not going to talk about it, so I'll stop talking about it. <laughs> halfway through July... Steve, who God has now told to come to the UK, and he's now living in the UK in obedience to the Word of God, gathered the pastors together, and he said, I've discovered that in the UK here, I've been told, forget about the summer, because nothing can happen, the church goes into slumber. And he said, God's spoken to me, this is not going to be a summer of slumber, this is going to be a summer of salvation. God's telling us that if we step out and preach the gospel and go to our friends again and give our testimonies again, God's promised us this will be a summer of salvation. And I was in a room when Steve shared that, and myself and my friends from our Hope Church, we said as soon as he spoke that, it was like faith being imparted. And we went back and we said to him, this is going to be a summer of salvation. How many are we believing to see saved? And that was in the beginning of July. And we're no great shakes as an evangelical church in reaching out. But Hope Church, over the last six weeks, we've seen 30 people saved and added to the church. We've opened the baptistry three times, and it's now being booked again and again. What happened? Faith was quickened. Expectancy rose because God had spoken. And the more we believed God and the more we stepped out, the more we saw the answer to our prayers, the more we saw people being saved and our confidence in the gospel grew and people began to ask their friends again. So last Sunday night, we had our Alpha Supper and there were 130 people there and people signing up because expectancy is now in the people's hearts. And God's gathered us here for a fresh wave of expectancy because when you expect it, it will happen. There's a wonderful little story about a young preacher who was being trained under the great Charles Spurgeon. And he went to Charles Spurgeon one day, quite concerned because he'd left the college and he now had his own church. He said, Mr. Spurgeon, when you preach, every time you preach, people get saved. But when I preach, people don't get saved. And Spurgeon looked him in the eye and said, you don't expect people to get saved every time you preach, do you? And the young man said, no, of course not. And Spurgeon said, well, there's your problem. <laughs> there's your problem. We've lost expectancy, and God wants to restore it. So something happens when we make that commitment. God blesses. Second thing that happens is this. 
And that's why I read Nehemiah chapter 6, the beginning of this message. Opposition arises. It gets harder. Difficulties come. We get overwhelmed sometimes. And we've got to be aware of that fact too. We have an enemy. We are not on a level playing field. The devil hates the city of God with a passion. And he desperately wants to try and stop its construction. So let's get personal about this. The devil wants to try and stop you. No matter how much God speaks to us tonight, you will go out that door and you will find you now have an enemy who wants to stop you. He desperately wants to lure you into compromise. He wants to get you frightened and distracted. He wants to lure you into sin. He wants you to become totally discouraged and he wants you to feel like giving up. Anybody in this room ever felt like giving up? Yeah, let's have some honesty. Come on. And the very reason that Nehemiah made the statement that we're focusing on this morning, this evening rather, is because he made a commitment and he discovered that there were forces who were out to either destroy him, defeat him or divert him and they didn't care which as long as they succeeded. Sam Ballot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab. In one way or another, I'm here to tell you these guys are still around. I haven't got any friends called Sam Ballot, but I know a lot of people like him. First they tried to turn the king against him. Then they tried to turn the people against him. Then they tried to raise an army against him. In fact, these three guys, they tried every trick in the book to stop Nehemiah building the wall. They tried misinformation. Of course, there's never any misinformation in our churches, are there? There's never any rumours that go around that aren't true. They tried sarcasm, they tried gossip, they tried lies, they tried intimidation. None of these schemes worked. And in the end, they were just reduced to trying to get Nehemiah distracted. And we're told in this passage that their first port of call to try and get Nehemiah distracted was a tactic that has neutralised many, many churches. They suggested that he had a meeting. Nehemiah 6 verse 2, come on, they said, let's meet together. Let's talk about this. And I want to say to every leader in this room, beware of people who simply want to discuss the vision rather than do the vision. Beware of those who want to analyse it and cost your vision over and over. Who please, Well, let's see it this way. Have you considered this? Can we afford it? And verse 4 tells us that they tried this tactic on Nehemiah four times and four times they got the same answer. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should I stop the work and leave it and go down to you? So let's think about this. Here we are. We're about a greater work than Nehemiah. We agreed on that. He was building a physical city. We're building the city of God. So maybe we should wise up to the tactics that the enemy will use against us. Tactics that will try and stop us and stop you and stop me and get us to give up on this great project. So let's wise up. What are the tactics the enemy is going to use against us? And there are lots, but I'm going to focus on four. Here's the big four that the devil uses over and over again to get the work on this great project to stop. Individualism. Fear, sin, discouragement. 
individualism. Do you see how often they tried to get Nehemiah out there on his own, away from his friends? Individualism, self-centeredness will always destroy a work of God. It's so common in the kingdom. The devil wants us constantly trying to get us to take our eyes off the church and onto ourselves. What's good for us? And we've been categorically told that we've been called to do something together. You can't do it on your own. The Bible couldn't be clearer on that. We are a body. We are a city. We are a family. We are a living temple. We are here for one another's success. Church life is team life. Nothing more, nothing less. And if you don't understand that, you haven't understood anything. There was no room on that wall that Nehemiah was building for any prima donnas. It had to be a team effort. It had to be people who were committed to working together. Imagine Nehemiah being faced with people saying things like, well, I will build the wall, but only when I feel like it. I will build the wall, but I don't like your design, so I'll let you know now, Nehemiah, I'll be building my own wall in my own way. Not going to be much of a city, is it? I'm going to be frank with you. As a pastor occasionally in church life you meet people who talk to you as if they're doing you a favor by turning up from time to time there are people who as you talk to them you feel something unspoken something in their attitude and you know that the most important thing in their life is them their great project is their ministry and not the church but you see, this great project only works when everyone forgets about themselves and focuses on the project. And if you don't believe me, go back and read 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul tells us very clearly, no one can say to anybody else, I don't need you. And no one can ever say to you, we don't need you. Because we're all needed to fulfill this great project. This great project is about working together. Repeat after me. This great project is about working together. Together. Okay, the second tactic of the enemy is this, fear. Nehemiah 6 verse 9 sums it up. They were all trying to frighten us. There's a whole realm of demonic influence out there trying to frighten you. Do you understand that? And then Nehemiah goes on to tell us why. They were trying to frighten us so that our hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. How many great ministries have faltered? How many churches have failed? Because in the end, a group of people just got too scared to carry on. It just got too hard. And fear comes in many guises. There's the fear of inadequacy, which produces insecurity. I think this one alone has so many Christians pinned down. Oh, I'm, I couldn't do that. I'm, I, I, it's just, I'm just not up to it. I'm inadequate. And I'll be honest with you, that's been the battle in my own life. So often I felt, no, no, I leave that to the big boys. 
And we've all got to stop listening to that voice of fear inside that says, I can't do it. The voice that says no. The voice that says, they won't like it. It won't work. Are you sure? Have you thought about the consequences in case it goes wrong? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, haven't you realized yet that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? In the Psalms, you know, you see David talking to himself. Yeah. And I have had to come to the place where I've realized I've got to give myself a good talking to from time to time. Hey, Trevor. Stop being afraid. Trevor, my boy, you are a new creation. You are a church builder. You are a son of God. You are a leader. You are an influencer. You are a lifter of heads. That's who you are. So now in future, if you hear me talking to myself, you'll know what's going on. Particularly as I come up those steps. And then there's the fear of failure. Supposing I fail. Okay, well, let's get this sorted out right now. There will be moments when you will fail. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And then there's the fear of making mistakes. And making mistakes is the best way to learn, isn't it? Unless you're brain dead, because then you keep on making the same mistake. But most people learn from their mistakes. I challenge you to find one significant person in the Bible who didn't screw up. Yeah? They all made a mess of it. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David. Peter made a career of it. <laughs> the list is endless of people who screwed up. And then there's the fear of others. Oh, we're all frightened of what other people think. I suddenly cottoned on a few years back. Not to worry about what people think. You know when you walk in a room or you go into a group and you think, I wonder what they're thinking about me. What do they think about what I just said? And I suddenly cottoned on to this wonderful truth that will set you free. No one in the room is thinking about you at all. They're all thinking about themselves and how they're coming across and what you're thinking about them. And once you know that, you're free. And then there's the fear of upsetting people, the desire to be popular. Albert Hubbard, advice on how to avoid criticism. Do nothing, say nothing, be nothing, and no one will trouble you, and no one will criticize you. As I read this, it doesn't seem that Nehemiah had a fear of confrontation, did it? He just told them to clear off. I saw a T-shirt, actually, with a map of Montana. It just said, clear off. It's not a very welcoming message for a stranger, you know. Fear keeps us cautious. And there's far too much caution in the church of Jesus Christ right now. God doesn't want you cautious. God doesn't want us cautious. He wants us bold and adventurous. And he wants us going out on a limb. Because the fruit is on the limb, folks. It's not on the trunk. And we've got to stop thinking about possible problems and we've got to start thinking about incredible possibilities. We've got to just stop discussing why things won't work and we've got to start thinking about why they will work. And we've got to start discussing how things can be done and why they will be done. Do you know what a B-H-A-G is? A B-H-A-G is a big, hairy, audacious goal. 
And God wants us to have big, hairy, audacious goals and go for it. We had a prayer meeting here last night. It was great. And I was able to tell the church. We had a prayer meeting back home recently. And one of our young men came to the front. He said, I've had a revelation. God's in a good mood tonight for answering prayer. And we went, hey, let's answer all our prayers tonight. And I suddenly thought about this. Hang about. I think God's in a good mood for answering prayer every night. Every day. See, God's in a good mood all the time. And you can come to it with big, hairy, audacious goals and say, God, give me this mountain. God, give me this church. God, give me this. And he's always in a good mood to bless those who ask him. The severest rebuke in the Bible is in the book of James, which says, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you're asking with the wrong motives. But once your motive is the kingdom of God, you can ask for anything you want and it will be given to you. One of your great men once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So let's remember that as a church. The third thing the devil is going to do once you start to really move forward and motor and make a commitment to build this great project is this. You're going to face temptation like you've never faced it before. Sin, compromise. If the devil can get us in that place, so I've got very simple notes on this one. Watch out! Because there's a devil about and he's trying to catch you out. He wants to get you to sin. If you commit yourself to this great project, expect temptation. What happened to Jesus as he came up out of the waters of baptism? As the heavens had just opened and God had spoken clearly about who he was, what happened next? He got tempted. Okay? Make a commitment tonight on your knees down the front here. You will get tempted. And you've got to know right here and now, you've got to stand against it. And Nehemiah recognized this plan. Verse 13, he wanted me to commit sin to discredit me. So let's remember this. No compromises, not even small ones. That's the lesson from Nehemiah. And number four, the last thing I want to mention tonight that could cause us to abandon, to slow down, to back off, to quit this great project is discouragement. This is the devil's great tactic. And if you haven't felt it yet, you will one day. A little voice in the head that says, why don't you just give up? Why don't you just give up and give yourself a break? I hear that voice about once a week. And as I now have the privilege of traveling a bit, I would say this is one of the biggest issues that I've come across as I visit churches around the world. Men and women who have grown discouraged. Leaders and people who have grown discouraged. They were on fire once. Oh, they were on fire for the church. They were on fire for Jesus once. They were on the front foot. They were inspired. They were engaged. They were committed. They were excited. But now they're just weary and they feel like giving up how do we combat discouragement one word vision that's why our leader's role is to keep saying here's the vision let's remind ourselves of the vision here's the vision this is what god wants us to do this is what god wants us to say this is where god wants us to go this is what god wants us to build it's all about vision people only perish only grow weary only get discouraged when they've forgotten the vision and the one thing that refreshes me is to remember what the devil wants me to most forget. 
that I'm about the greatest project that anybody can ever give their lives to. And this is the one thing that will last for eternity and I want to go for it. Remember that. God's ultimate intention for you is to be involved in this project, nothing else. And for you to say, that's me. That's my vision. That's my goal, the city of God. And when the enemy comes against us, we have to remind him that we are about a great project and we will not go down. We will not be discouraged. Sometimes we just got to turn around, face the enemy in the eye and say, clear off. Brothers and sisters, it's time to start talking back. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the evil one. We're the ones who are advancing. He's the one who's upset. We're out to destroy him and he knows it. So we've got to use these words. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3. Individualism, why should I stop the work and go down to you? Fear, why should I stop this work and go down to you? Compromise and sin, why should I stop this work and go down to you? Discouragement, why should I stop the work and go down to you? And why are we saying all this? Why are we here? Because the world needs us, church. It needs us strong. It needs us passionate. It needs us united. It needs us involved. It needs us courageous. It needs us devoted. It needs us selfless. It needs us envisioned. It needs us excited about our calling. The world desperately needs an Acts 2, 42, 47 church. And if it's not going to be us, there's nobody else in reserve. It's us. And the world needs us. Do you want your life to count for something? Give yourself to this great project. Because these are days of opportunity like we've never had before. I want us to get hold of that question that Bill Hybers asked. What if? What if every one of us in this room suddenly rose up and took hold of our inheritance with both hands and refused to give up? What are the longings of your heart? Here are mine. I want to make a difference. I want to help change lives. I want to influence people and share the love of God with them. I want to influence my community. I want to share the salvation of God with my community. I want to influence future generations. I want to share with future generations the inheritance of God. I want to fulfill my destiny. And I know this, the only place that I can fulfill my destiny is in the local church. A local church that's committed to nothing less than changing the world. You may have heard this before. But I came across this statement a while back. It's written by a young pastor in Zimbabwe, and it's called, My Banner is Clear. I'm going to close by reading this. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. My die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer and labor by his power.
My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, but my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus and I must go on till he comes, give till I drop, preach all I know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my banner will be clear. Isn't that wonderful? I guess he could have summed it up in this phrase. I'm about a great project and I will not go down. Now we have a choice now because it's five to nine and this meeting was supposed to end at half past eight and there's a meal waiting for you. So everybody is hungry, you can go now. But those of us who want to press into Jesus, we're going to have the opportunity to do that right now. So if you want to commit yourself to this, if you want to give yourself to this great project, I want you to stand now and we're going to pray together. And if you find yourself being tempted, if you find yourself in a place of anxiety and fear, if you find yourself discouraged, then come to the front because there are those of us here who want to pray with you and set you on a new course tonight because we have something to do in America. We have something to do together and it's to build this great project that we need to leave here tonight knowing we are about a great project and we dare not be distracted. Let's lift our hands. Lord, look upon us. Look upon every heart in this room. Lord, our faces are fixed on you. As we right now step out of the boat to a new era of opportunity, we keep our eyes fixed on you. We're not looking at ourselves anymore, but one thing we are doing, Lord, we're committing ourselves to this great project, and we are telling the devil right now, we will not go down. We will not be distracted. For we know that by your grace you will uphold us and we are deciding right now to trust you every step of the way and to see in our generation, in our cities, in this world, the city of God established and built by us. So Lord, I pray that as we gather tomorrow, as we gather in this room again and again, that you just keep pressing in upon us and opening our eyes to the vision that it might just not be seen by us, Lord, but the vision might seize us until it consumes us, until nothing else matters but this one great project, the city of God, the city set on a hill. Father, I want to thank you for these people who've gathered. Pour out your spirit upon us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to respond in any way, if you want prayer in any way, just come to the front now and we would love to pray with you.